Well, let's begin then in prayer. Father, it is good to be together. It's good to be gathered here in this place, in this time, and to be gathered in the the name of our Lord Jesus and by the shared life of his spirit. Father, we're grateful for your mercy. We're grateful that you, by your power and your goodness, have brought us out of darkness into light. You have given us to share in your life, and you have begun this work of renewal. You have raised us up in Jesus our Lord and seated us in that realm that he inhabits with you. And Father, to live out that life in this time, in these days, it is a challenge for us to be people who truly have hearts and minds set on things above, to recognize that we died and our lives are hidden with Christ in you. But it is a glorious thing to be your children and to be knit together in that way. And we pray that you would lead us, that you would bring fruitfulness to this time, that it would encourage and edify us as your saints, and that we would be built up in this most holy faith. We ask all these things of you and ask for you to meet each one according to his need, help each one in their understanding, and may this be truly a time of blessed growth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we just introduced the, the general topic of this project of knowing God and the fact that as um, people created in his image and likeness, we can't escape from this quest for the divine, this desire to know the divine. But, but the fall has created this distance in which people... Uh, express their spirituality in terms of religion as magic. We being at the center of our experience, the center of our interest, the center of even our religious understanding. And so we are those who pursue God according to our sense of who he is, our expectation of him, uh, our sense of ultimately what his purposes for us are. But we saw also that the scripture uh, really presents this, this case for God, not in terms of, here's God, here's what he's like, but what is his purpose for his creation? Why did he create? The, the scripture as the telling of the story of redemption is the story of God's purpose for the world. And that leads us into this kind of first substantial uh, revisiting of this series of sacred space, which is the very concept of sacred space itself. Um, I think a lot of us are probably familiar with the phrase, uh, probably maybe some more than others, but when we hear the phrase sacred space, I think a lot of people tend to think of heaven. Sacred space is the place where God is, the, the dwelling place of God, and it really is a creational idea. It has to do with the creation Sacred space, just even in the idea of space, a realm or a domain, uh, you can't have even the notion of sacred space except 
with there being a creation. Because without a creation, you, you don't have God somewhere. You have God existing. And so sacred space in itself speaks to God's intent in creating. His relationship with respect to the creation. So as I say, it, it refers not so much to God's dwelling as such, but to the place, if you will, place in the sense in which, uh, as a metaphor, the place of encounter. So sacred space, foundationally then, um, has to do with how God is in relation to his creation, not where he is. And as I said last week, we tend to think of God as out there someplace. I'm here, I'm walking around on this planet, God is out there somewhere. And I need to somehow figure out how to interact with him, how to connect with him, how to make him accessible and, and agreeable to my intents, to my desires, to my needs, to my lack. But sacred space biblically is concerned with how God is. In other words, it speaks to God's intent behind his work of creation. And specifically, it's a relational idea. When we think of space and time as created by God, they themselves are relational concepts, and that's beyond where I want to go today. But the issue is, again, God's intent, his purpose, specifically as a relational purpose, the relationship he intended to establish with the created order in and through man. That's the story that the scriptures tell. And so that's the perspective for understanding how all things exist for God's glory. And in the sermon, you, you heard me talking about that as kind of a basic reformed maxim. Why did God create me in all things for his own glory? Okay, well, what does that mean? How do we understand that? And this is the framework for understanding that. So I want to begin where the scripture begins, with, which is with the creation account. And it's in the creation account that we see the introduction of this concept of sacred space. And I would argue that from that point forward, it is the foundational theme that is woven through all of the scriptures, reaching its uh, ultimate treatment in Revelation 21 and 22. Now the dwelling of God is with men. So the creation narrative itself is constructed to emphasize two primary themes, the themes of sanctuary, or God's dwelling place, and the theme of kingdom. Again, showing that the, the emphasis is on the creator-creature encounter, the encounter between God and his creation, and the relationship expressed by that, or the relationship that God seeks through that. If you're familiar with the creation account, and I know there's a lot of different ways that people approach the creation account, but fundamentally what you see are in the creation events, the creation days, if you will, you see two parallel sets of creation events. Days one through three, you have the creation of what can be called realms of existence or realms of dominion, the creation of light as expressing day and night, 
the separating out of the heavens from the waters below, the waters beneath. It's it's expressed according to the ancient way of understanding cosmology and and you know in the ancient world they believed that the reason why water would fall out of the sky is that the sky had a firmament, it had a hard ceiling on it, and above it was another kind of sea or watery world and and essentially what would happen is breaks would happen or openings would be made in that firmament such that the water could fall down through. And and the creation account is expressed according to that ancient way of thinking about things because, again, this was not written to us. It was written to an ancient Israelite audience. But anyway, you see in the first three days the creation of three realms of dominion or realms of existence, and then in the next three days, you see the creation of the corresponding creatures who serve as lords of those realms. So day one, as I said, you have the creation of light that establishes the difference between day and night. Well, then in day four, you have the creation of the sun, moon, and the stars, which are created to rule the day and the night, to govern the seasons. It's the language of lordship. If, if you look in Genesis chapter 1, you can see this. Verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And he made the two great lights, the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, and the lesser night, light, the moon, to govern the night. Govern, govern, govern. He placed in the expanse of the heavens them to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. Then you have him creating the sea creatures and the land creatures to again govern or to preside over their individual spheres of dominion, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field. And it corresponds to, as that creation account opens, you see that the, the God's statement of the creation of the heavens and the earth is that the earth was formless and void, is what the NES says. But it's the Hebrew terms tohu and bohu, and it really means... Um, in tohu means uh, empty or or chaotic is better the idea. It, it means incapable of supporting inhabitants, uninhabitable. And then bohu means empty or without inhabitants. So you have a chaotic, uninhabitable situation, and then no inhabitants in those spheres. And now God begins this process of ordering and filling. Out of chaos, he brings order. He makes a habitable creation. And then out of the emptiness, he brings inhabitants. And so the creation in the six days, that, that, that process as it's unfolded, is the answer to tohu and bohu. And that becomes a theme even later with the exile and the destruction of the Israelite kingdom where God promises he didn't create the earth to be tohu wabohu, but to be inhabited, to be filled. So the process of creation is God showing that it's about ordering and filling. 
The ordering is the creating of the realms or the spheres in which the creatures will preside, and the filling is the creating of the lords of those realms. That's where this kingdom idea comes from. Realms of dominion, lords over those realms. And then on day six comes the high point with the creation of man. Man is created as the lord of the lords. He's to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field. Right? Each of those creatures have their own realms they preside over, but man presides over them all. But he does so as the image and likeness of God. And so what the creation account wants you to see is that God created man to be the administrator of his own rule in the creation. Man is God's image and likeness such that God would execute his own rule through man. And that brings in the priest-king idea, which isn't spoken of here, but it becomes huge throughout the scriptures that man's vocation is ultimately that he would be priest-king. He is the one, a priest is a mediator between two entities. And man's role as creature, but image-bearer, is to mediate the, the relationship between God and the created order. Man is the presence and the lordship of God in the world. And he also, so he's the one who brings the mind, the will, the goodness, the way in which God is Lord and King. Man brings that to bear in the world. But then he also, in a sense, gathers up the creation's praise back to God. He is that mediator between the two. He is king, priest. So Israel's calling, as we'll see down the road, Israel as son of God was a royal priesthood, right? A priestly kingly nation. And ultimately, when God brings the true man into the world, it's that he would be priest, king. And in the renewal that is in the Messiah, Revelation 5 says that in Christ, God has made the human race to be priests and kings to our God, right? So that's an important theme that is implicitly already introduced in the creation account. And also implied in that, um, and this is not something that I've innovated, there are other theologians who have noted this, um, man as the image, in, in Genesis 2 then you see God taking the man and he puts him in the garden that he himself walks in the midst of. And in an ancient uh, way of reading that and understanding that, as I've said before, um, gods were manifested in temples or, you know, dwelling places associated with altars. And when a temple was constructed to a god, the last thing that would be placed into that temple or that sacred space um, was a tangible physical image that represented the deity, whatever that deity was. And that became the point of interface with the worshiper. When the worshiper would go into the temple, he would interface with that particular deity before or in the presence of 
that physical image. Somehow the deity was made embodied and present and accessible through the image. And that's what you see also in the creation account. Effectively, it's depicting God creating a temple in which he will dwell and he will be present and known and accessible and worshipped through this, you know, by his creation through this image that sits in the middle of his temple. And so the point is then that the creation narrative in introducing sacred space is emphasizing the nature and the purpose of creation, not the mechanics or the process. It's a modern innovation, relatively speaking, 19th century. Really, it it kind of came to the forefront with um, Darwin and the origin of the species and the need to somehow provide a biblical um, uh, counter explanation for uh, origins other than evolution, that Christians started insisting on reading the Genesis account as um, a scientific explanation of origins. But it was never that, and and it's not written as that. In the uh, the ancient world, uh, the truth of a thing, the meaning of a thing, was in its function not in its constituent parts. The meaning of salt was what it did, how it functioned, not the fact that it's NaCl, sodium chloride, a chlorine atom and a hydrogen, and a um, sodium, sodium and a chlorine atom. That's the modern way of thinking about things. And we do still, as I've said, tend to describe things or understand things in terms of functionality, if, if someone were to say, what's a computer? You, you wouldn't say, well, it consists of X amount of transistors and you know a CRT, whatever. You'd say, well, it's a machine that does this, right? The function of it. But it's a principle that, that we understand, and it was very much in the forefront of the thinking in the ancient world. Form follows function. In other words, what does it mean that man is the image and likeness of God? It has to do with his function. Just like a chair has the form it does because of its function, the lawnmower has the form it does because of its function. Form flows out of function, right? Not the other way around. You don't just throw together a lawnmower and say, what can I do with this thing? That's not how it works. It's the other way around. So the way that the, the Israelites would have read the creation account is not to say, wow, you know, where did the atoms come from? Or how did the energy of the Big Bang get converted into uh, matter? Uh, you know, a, a first formation of hydrogen atoms or something. It wasn't that. So it's a theological explanation of the creation, not a how did God do it. It's not a scientific explanation. The creation account shows the nature and the purpose of the created order. In other words, the meaning of the creation. What is the meaning of this world? And that's really a more important question. It is that question that all people ask. Why are we here? Why does this world exist? What is this about? How do we understand? And that's what the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is doing, is giving us that answer. So it lays the foundation then for the rest of the text. In a a sense, it, it establishes 
the, the destiny for which God created, the purpose for which he created. And the rest of the scripture up through the coming of the Messiah to the end is the working out of that accomplishment of that purpose. So that's how sacred space is introduced in the creation narrative. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about is just Eden specifically. Eden as this garden or as this this space um, that that the creation is associated with. And if you listen to the sermons, there, there are two primary descriptors that the text uses. And the importance, one of the importances of bringing this, this stuff out is that these ideas keep popping up as you read through the Old Testament, and even through the New, but certainly through the Old. They become thematic, and so you want to keep track of them. You, you want to you want to say, okay, well, why is why is that being used again, or how is that idea carrying carrying forward? And those two themes associated with Eden, this sacred space, are the mountain of God and the garden of God. The mountain of God and the garden of God. And I'm not going to go through all of these texts. I've given you some uh, passages here that you can go back and look at. We'll look at a couple of them. But first and foremost, the mountain of God is associated with Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. The mountain of God in the ancient world, the significance of that is that people thought of deities or spiritual powers dwelling in high places. That's why when God speaks to Israel's idolatry, he talks about them um, committing these um, this infidelities, you know, spreading their skirts or laying out you know, offerings on every high place under every spreading tree. It was considered that the, the gods or the powers were above us, and so you would ascend to them. High places were the place of encounter, and Babel's a great example of that, right? We're going to build a pathway for us to climb up to lay hold of God's own dwelling place. So mountain of God has to do with the place of encounter. That's kind of the main idea behind that theme. And you see it uh, developed and carried forward in the way that the scripture speaks of Mount Zion. Mount Zion. The temple was built on Mount Zion. And Jerusalem and and, uh, Mount Zion, or the idea of God's uh, high holy mountain, those things are often used synonymously. I'll just read a couple of verses from Isaiah 2, and these are the same basic prophetic statement is made in um, Micah's prophecy also. It says, The word of the Lord, uh, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Jude and Jerusalem, it will, now it will come about in the last days. Not the last days as we think about it, but in the days of renewal, in the days when God returns and restores and, uh, you know, does this return to Zion in this restorative work? It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, the highest place, the highest of the high places. And it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. 
And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we we may walk in his paths. For his Torah will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, God's holy mount there is associated with his house, the place of encounter, and with Jerusalem itself. So those ideas get woven together very closely. In Ezekiel's prophecy, the mountain of God is used specifically in relation to Eden. Eden. So there even the Eden idea is connected with that. The mountain of God. The second thing then is this this, uh, idea of the garden of God. And it is a complementary idea. It, it adds to this idea of mountain of God as the place of encounter, the place where men encounter their God by adding these ideas of profusion, perfection, beauty, blessing, fullness, satisfaction. If you will, and we'll see this more next time, the ideas of shalom and shabbat, peace and rest the garden of God. In the creation account, you see that the man is placed, God God makes a garden and he sets the man there to keep the garden. And we tend to think, okay, he's telling him to work it. Get out your hoe, get out your plow. And, And that's not the idea of the Hebrew language. It's the idea of stewarding it. Fulfilling that role of lordship. This is God's garden. You keep it on his behalf. You are a steward of it. And there is no need for tilling or working in the sense that we think. Because the creation is yielding up its abundance effortlessly, happily, joyfully. What comes with the fall is the opposite. The enmity between man and the creation such that now you've got to fight it. It's going to be the sweat of your brow to bring forth any uh, food from it. You're going to fight and fight and fight the earth at every at every point to eke out a, a, a sustenance from it. And in the end, it's going to win. It's going to beat you up to the point that you finally die, and then you go into the earth and it consumes you. But that's the antithesis of what it was created to be where it becomes the servant of man and his joy and his lordship. And man's job is to steward it and manifest God's wise love, God's goodness in the world. It's not work it in the way that we think about it. But that's the garden of God idea. And you see in the creation narrative that at the center of it is this tree of life. And we'll talk more about that. But when God says you have access to everything in the garden, preeminently that focuses on the tree of life in the center. And that life represents God's own life, evident in the fact that when Adam and Eve sin, when they seek to establish their independence, when they seek to identify their own humanness and and have a human existence, existence independent of God, that results in severance from the life of God. Paul speaks that way, right? You, darkness, in, uh, ignorance in your minds, cut off from the life of God. 
So in the garden, the way it's depicted is that, that Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, specifically from the tree of life. And God places his cherubim at the opening to the garden so that they cannot have access to it. And what the text wants you to see is that the rest, you know, the great need now of man and therefore of the creation, because the creation's relationship with God is in and through man, the great need now is return to the garden, specifically the reobtainment of access to life, the obtaining of life that is in reconciliation with God. Human beings becoming what they truly are, what God created them to be. And that is where we see this idea of the sanctuary, God's dwelling place, really coming into the forefront. It's the garden where God dwells. So in the very first instance, uh, the scripture builds this theme of sacred space in this sort of way. And if we try to read Genesis 1 as a scientific explanation of origins, uh, counter-evolution or something, then we're really missing not only the point, but the beauty and the glory, and really an understanding of what the text wants us to see, uh, the real purpose for the creation. So as the text moves along, as the scripture moves along, you will employ this language and imagery of Eden as sacred space to describe things such as Canaan. Canaan itself is called the land of milk and honey, right? Abundance, profusion, blessedness. Why? Because it's where God is. When Israel comes out of Egypt and they pass through the Red Sea and God destroys the Egyptians... The song of Moses is that God has brought us out to bring us to his holy mountain, referring to Canaan, his habitation, his dwelling place. There, and, and so in a sense, the return or the entrance into Canaan is a prototypical return to the garden. <clears throat> return to God, to his habitation a return to the creation as, as God intends it to be. You see it used of the temple itself. Even the way the temple is adorned is very much a picture of Eden. Right? And I won't go into all of that today, but, but if you look at the way the, the coverings, the, the embroidery on the linens and that sort of thing in the temple, it's very much a depiction of a garden scene. Israel back with God and therefore return to Eden. And then ultimately, most importantly, of the restored Zion. In Amos chapter 9, God says, When I arise and I rebuild David's fallen tabernacle, then the plower will overtake the reaper, right? The, the reaper will overtake the plower, the sower will overtake the reaper. It's just, again, it, it happens so quickly. It's just it's all this abundance. And the hills will drip with sweet wine, and there will be profusion and abundance. Same thing in Hosea. When you see this restoration, God says, in that day I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness, I will speak kindly to her, I will give her her vineyards from there, the valley of Achor is a door of hope. She will sing theirs in the days of her youth. And he goes on to say, in that day I will make a covenant on their behalf with the beasts of the field. 
with the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. They will lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and compassion. That covenant renewal means a renewal of the, of the relationship between God's image children and the creation itself, the beasts of the field, a renewal of all things. And then again, as I said in Amos, I'll just read this passage and then we'll wrap up. This is the passage that they cite at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 when they're trying to understand the significance of Gentiles now coming to faith. How do we understand that as the Jewish people? In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and I will wall up its breaches, I will raise up its ruins. This is David's kingdom, the promise to David of a house, a throne, and a kingdom that abide forever. I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they, the kingdom people, that David's recovered kingdom people, may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the, re- and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. I will restore the captivity of my people, Israel, and when they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens, and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Not specifically a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but sacred space. The dwelling that God has established for his people where he will be with them. And that's what you see in Revelation, right? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now the dwelling of God is with men. So that's how this sacred space idea is introduced. And as I said, the rest of the scripture is just building the case for how that will be fleshed out. And ultimately, then my closing statement is that in all these things, we see glimpses into the incarnate Messiah, to whom all of these things pointed and in whom they find their ultimate meaning. He is the fulfillment of sacred space, the dwelling of God in relation to his creation. And so it is with his people who are his fullness. We know from John's writing, certainly, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple as sacred space. But as I was saying to somebody the other day, he himself is the church. If the church is the dwelling of God in the spirit, if the church is the true human entity taken up in the life and love of God, Jesus is the church. The church is his fullness, right? All of these things have their essential substance in him. And this then becomes a part of, uh, I think, a key aspect of how we understand the Christ-centeredness of all the scriptures. How it is that Jesus could say, all of these things testify of me. All these things testify of me. Well, let me pray, and um, then we'll, we'll enter into some discussion, maybe some questions. Father, we just only scratched the surface. Um, There is so much more that could be said. And I I pray that each of us would be contemplative people, that we would spend 
time with you thinking on these things, meditating on them, being enriched by them, having them become living, nourishing. Father, I do believe that the primary reason that Christians and the Christian faith have become so impotent, powerless, ineffective in the world is that we have lost these truths. We want to argue with people about points of doctrine. We want to wrangle over issues uh, that are secondary. We even want to view our lives with you in terms of our lives Mm -hmm. in this world and the making better of the days that we have here and now. We truly don't understand and we certainly don't manifest in the world the good news of new creation. That in Christ all things have been made new. And that by your grace and by your sovereign power, you are working towards that day when the whole creation will at last enter into its own joy. As you make your human creature fully exhaustively human by fully sharing in the resurrected life of the Messiah himself. Father, help us to be a people who are transformed by these things, who bear the fragrance of these things, who testify truthfully of your gospel, not just in one-on-one encounters or in particular discussions, but in the lives that we live, in the countenance in our face, in our hearts, in the priorities of life, in the way we think about our days and our relationships and our work and our worship and who we even are. What does it mean to be Christians? Bless us, Father, as we continue uh, and we ask that you will meet each one again according to his need and that you will be pleased to continue to build us up in all things into Christ the head. And may we be faithful stewards of that mission and calling towards one another and towards all those that you bring into our our lives. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.